Hello and welcome to United for Peace, episode 1.1, The Congo in Crisis. Today, we will discuss the fifth ever official UN peacekeeping mission, the typically imaginatively named United Nations Operation in the Congo, most often referred to by its French acronym, ONUC. ONUC is one of the largest peacekeeping operations ever, and the first time the United Nations directly intervened in a civil conflict, although that was not the purpose of the operation upon authorization. In popular media, this operation is best known for one of its major engagements, which inspired a film, The Siege of Jadovi. It's a good movie. Operations began in July 1960. UN forces and staff remained until the end of June 1964. The mission reached peak intensity in July 1961, with nearly 20,000 UN military personnel present at the time, in addition to hundreds of civilian personnel. 245 UN military personnel died during the mission, as well as five international civilian staff, including UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, whose fatal air crash infamously occurred under shady circumstances. 30 diverse sovereign states contributed military personnel over the course of the operation. At the risk of boring you all to death, I am going to list them because I think it's important to grasp just how involved the global community is in UN affairs. It is not merely a channel to express the will of great powers, even if plenty of that does still happen. All of the troop-contributing countries are Argentina, Austria, Brazil, Burma, Canada, Ceylon, Denmark, Ethiopia, Ghana, Guinea, India, Indonesia, Iran, Ireland, Italy, Liberia, Malaya, now part of Malaysia, Mali, Morocco, the Netherlands, Nigeria, Norway, Pakistan, the Philippines, Sierra Leone, Sudan, Sweden, Tunisia, the United Arab Republic, now Egypt and Syria, and Yugoslavia. Now, before we talk about the operation, let's take a brief look at the events leading up to the mission. The Republic of the Congo, currently the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formally gained independence from Belgium on uh, June 30th, 1960. However, the Congolese armed forces, the Force Publique, remained under the command of Belgian officers. Lieutenant General Emil Janssens retained ultimate control over the armed forces and opposed the entry of black men into the officer corps, although 20 black Congolese men were already enrolled in officer training at Belgian academies. Soldiers of the Force Publique, already weary, stretched thin, maintaining order during the independence celebrations, were obviously insulted by this. I mean, come on. And many mutinied. The first mutinies began on July 5th, after news reached the garrison at Tysville that Emil Jensen's had assembled NCOs of the Leopoldville garrison on July 1st, Leopoldville now being called Kinshasa for reasons that are obvious to anyone who knows anything about the history of the Belgian Congo. And he gave a speech about how nothing had changed for the army on account of independence. This obviously outraged the soldiers and officers of the Force Publique, not just because it was an insult that Europeans would remain in charge of things in their newly independent Congo, but also because many expected promotions and raises in pay following their independence. Maybe Janssens was trying to dash their hopes before they got too attached to the idea so that they wouldn't demand quite as much or something, I don't know. 
In any case, the Tysville garrison mutinied. The Leopoldville garrison quickly mutinied as well, and from their units all across the Congo started to mutiny. Emil Jensen's advised Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba to deploy Belgian troops in order to restore law and order. Instead, Lumumba dismissed Janssen's from the Force Publique, renamed it to the National Army of the Congo, or Ami Nationale Congolaise in French, hence the acronym ANC, and promoted every black soldier by at least one rank. Despite Prime Minister Lumumba's and President Joseph Kazuvubu's personal intervention at Leopoldville and Tysville to convince mutineers to lay down their arms, the mutinies intensified throughout most of the country. Reacting to this turn of events, Belgium sent paratroopers on July 9th to Kabalo, Brazzaville, and Kisangani, then known as Stanleyville, without permission from the Congo. This deployment then violated a treaty of friendship that Belgium and the Congo had signed on June 29th, just a day before the Congo formally gained independence, which gave Belgium permission to deploy troops to maintain law and order if invited by the Congolese government. Not that this treaty was worth much anyway, I mean, the Congolese parliament never ratified it, so it was a flagrant violation of Congolese sovereignty in any case. But the Belgians had a decent case for their intervention, nominally. Uh, this deployment was for a rescue operation, and at first it practically was. However, after Belgium had completed an evacuation of civilians seeking to flee from the city of Matadi, the most significant of Congo's seaports, with the support of the Congolese government, mind you, Belgian naval vessels bombarded the city on July 11th. This timing is extremely significant because Belgian forces had just been deployed at this time to Elizabethville, then the capital of mineral-rich Katanga the day before. And along with this deployment, chain store tycoon and prominent provincial politician Moise Chombe proclaimed Katanga's independence with Belgium's support and with himself as president. Chombe claimed... This was to counteract a communist insurgency that the Congolese central government could not deal with. But, you know, that's obviously a load of bull. The bombardment of Matadi seems to have been, essentially, a ploy to keep the Congo from sending any troops to crack down on this secession, unless we want to imagine it as a cold-hearted, long-range massacre of 19 civilians killed by the naval guns. The fact that attacks on Europeans living in the Congo renewed and intensified, justifying further Belgian deployments resulting in direct clashes with ANC forces, thus tying down the ladder, seems to reinforce the Katanga support hypothesis. Which, before you go rattling that off to people, I have made up without seeing it in any literature on the Congo crisis. That is my own speculation. I think it's plausible enough, though, so feel free to provide feedback. In any case, what was the deal with Katanga? Well, it was an extremely mineral-rich province whose industry was arguably key to the Congo's economic viability as a state. An Anglo-Belgian corporation, Union Minière du Haut Katanga, most commonly referred to simply as Union Minière, controlled all or at least virtually all mining in the province. Also, nearly one out of three of the 100,000 Belgians living in the Congo at this time lived in Katanga. So, Katanga had a strong Belgian presence, especially in its political and economic upper class. The Belgians living there had strong connections even to the native Congolese politicians and businessmen in the province. Their interests were intertwined, and it seems Belgium was keen to maintain their influence in this lucrative province. So, the Belgian response to the crisis seemed to quickly escalate from a mission to rescue or protect Europeans and their property to a mission to guarantee Belgium's neocolonial interests. 
This is about the time that the UN gets involved. United Nations Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld already had a special representative in the Congo expecting great difficulties associated with independence. Ralph Bunch, his representative, urged the Congolese cabinet on July 11th to request, quote, assistance of a military nature, end quote, although Hammarskjöld advised the Congolese to change the wording to, quote, technical assistance in the field of security administration, end quote. Is that sterilized enough for you? Good. Phrased this way, the request would allow the SG to intervene without consulting the Security Council and risking a veto. However, this first request was sent before news of direct fighting between Belgian and ANC forces reached the government, which is actually amazing since Belgian forces advanced on the capital itself around this time. Anyway, because of this, on July 12, 1960, President Joseph Kazavubu and Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba formally requested support from the United Nations to ensure the withdrawal of Belgian troops and to restore internal order to the nascent nation-state. They explicitly stated that if the UN did not provide assistance, they would seek help from the Bandung Treaty countries, a group of African and Asian nations concerned with the role of developing states in development, decolonization, and peace. In response, Dag Hammarskjöld addressed the Security Council on the night of July 13th and asked them to act with utmost speed in support of the Congo. The Security Council swiftly drafted and adopted Resolution 143. Eight members voted in favor, zero against, and three states abstained, the Republic of China, France, and the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom and France, as colonial imperial states themselves, had plenty of reasons not to support this resolution. But, of course, you can imagine the PR disaster of voting against it. Now, if you paid attention particularly closely, you'll notice that the total vote tally indicates that the United States and Soviet Union both voted in favor of the operation. This may seem rather unusual, especially after the United States just about a decade earlier pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into Belgium as part of the Marshall Plan in order to keep it economically viable itself in an effort to combat raising communist voices. But both the United States and the Soviet Union were consistently in opposition to colonial imperialism, at least nominally. There were reasons of self-interest, though, because, of course there were. The Soviet Union saw an opportunity to gain a foothold in Central Africa. Here was an opportunity to demonstrate steadfast support for the independence of colonized peoples, and Prime Minister Lumumba was in fact a leftist politician, so the USSR could count on his cooperation in the future. The United States, meanwhile, wanted to demonstrate that the West was not chained to colonial imperialism and wanted a West-friendly government to come out the other side of the crisis. Now, Security Council Resolution 143 intentionally contained no provision for restoring the internal situation of the Congo, as both Prime Minister and President explicitly said that is not part of their request for assistance. I emphasize the word situation because the resolution was designed to restore internal order, as stated before, but neither the Congolese government nor the UN wanted to escalate tensions between the Congo's various ethnicities or rival political centers by inviting foreign powers to settle the country's political affairs. We will see how the bane of armies, the dreaded mission creep, will result in the direct involvement of the UN in a Congolese civil war later. So, now that we have summarized the events leading to the operation, let's look at the operation itself and all the turbulent events surrounding it. In a remarkable demonstration of political will and logistical capability, 
a force comprised of armed and civilian personnel arrived within just 48 hours of passage of Resolution 143. The peacekeeping units arrived piecemeal, getting ahead of their own logistical chains and, even in advance of Onak headquarters staff oftentimes, they were deployed on an ad hoc basis to the most troubled areas, rather than according to any particular plan. The situation was simply so intense and so fast-moving that there wasn't really any time to develop a comprehensive deployment plan. As per the explicit directive to not interfere with internal affairs, peacekeepers were not deployed at all to Katanga or South Kazai, another secessionist state that ended up causing far fewer headaches than Katanga, although it certainly caused headaches, which we will discuss. The four goals of the mission were to restore law and order, to prevent other nations from involving themselves in the conflict, to assist in rebuilding the economy, and to restore stability. In fulfilling the goals of the mission, UN peacekeepers had to protect Europeans remaining in the Congo, prevent unsupplied and unpaid ANC units from marauding, safeguard humanitarian aid, and intervene to halt conflict between various ethnic groups. In addition, they had to facilitate the withdrawal of all Belgian national forces, as per Security Council Resolution 143's demands. To this end, Belgium started withdrawing troops on July 16th, shortly after the arrival of the first UN contingent, and promised to withdraw all forces by July 23rd. And to Belgium's credit, by July 23rd, it had withdrawn all of its national forces. Objective complete. Well, sort of. Belgium withdrew all troops from the Congo except in the breakaway state of Katanga, where Belgium offered military support and ordered its civil servants to remain at their posts. This presented a technical and political problem for Onuk. On the one hand, Katanga had a functioning government, gendarmerie, and constitution, so Onuk could technically fulfill its mandate to restore law and order in cooperation with the provincial government. However, this would obviously be seen by the central government as the UN supporting illegitimate rebels backed by Belgian interests. But one way or another, Onuk had to enter Katanga to ensure the withdrawal of the 1,700 Belgian soldiers stationed there who would not leave until some authority could guarantee the continued safety of European lives and property. So on August 4th, Secretary General Hammerscheld dispatched Special Representative Ralph Bunch to Elizabethville to meet with relevant Belgian and Katangese authorities, with plans to start Onuk deployments in the province on August 6th. However, what Bunch found was that President Chombe, his ministers, and regional chiefs all staunchly opposed any entrance of Onuk troops into Katanga. Furthermore, the gendarmerie were actively preparing to resist Onuk's entry into the province. So, Bunch advised delaying Onuk's deployment into Katanga. Responding to this, Hammerscheld sought a stronger mandate to enter Katanga. The Security Council passed a new resolution on August 9th, declaring that entry of UN forces into Katanga was essential to the fulfillment of its mandate, but also that the UN would in no way act as a party to or otherwise intervene in any internal conflict, constitutional or otherwise. Once again, the UN is playing things very carefully and trying to avoid becoming entangled in a civil war. Oh, how hard they tried. The wording of this resolution appeared to appease Chombe, who then indicated that he was ready to discuss the entry of Onuk into Katanga. He said that he sought no conditions for this, but Hammerschild thought it would be necessary for them to have a, quote, frank exchange of views, end quote, and flew out to Elizabethville on August 12th, accompanied by Onuk Deputy Force Commander General Katani, Secretary General Military Advisor General Rikye, 
and a handful of civilian aides along with two companies of Swedish infantry. In case you were wondering, I haven't seen any source explain why Swedish infantry was chosen, but given some conditions we will discuss later, it was probably because white soldiers were less likely to cause Katangi's forces to mistake them for ANC units coming to subdue Katanga. Also possibly because Hammarskjöld himself was Swedish. So, you know, however you want to think about it. Anyway, Shombe agreed to a meeting and the composition of Hammarskjöld's delegation, but quickly revealed a hint of his duplicity, which we will see plenty of over the course of this mission. Chombe attempted to prevent the plane carrying the Swedish infantry from landing at the Elizabethville airport, which was extremely threatening to the UN dignitaries, given how clear Katangi's authorities were previously about not wanting Onuk in their territory. Adhering to the advice of General Rikye, Hemmerschel decided against landing in Elizabethville until his infantry guard were permitted to land. Chombe reluctantly acquiesced. Before the meeting, Shombe had issued a number of demands to the UN, no condition indeed. Now, this is a long list that is almost too unwieldy to put here, but it is a great showcase in how hesitant Katanga was to have any dealings with the UN, so I'm going to rattle it off anyway. Hope you're ready. Shombe wanted no units from Ghana or Guinea allowed into Katanga, since those countries were pro-Lumumba, for the UN to refrain from interfering in Katangi's financial and administrative affairs, for the UN to refrain from flying central government officials into Katanga, for Katanga to retain control over entrance and exit from the province, for Katanga to maintain the right to appoint any foreign technicians in the province, for the UN to disarm paramilitary units all throughout the Congo, and for the UN to recognize the constitution of Katanga. Got all that? Good. Because these demands will not really materialize into much. Hammerschild came to Elizabethville with a memorandum ready in hand, stating that the UN's role in Katanga would be based on the UN Observer Group in Lebanon, which in 1958 monitored an area to prevent weapon smuggling and other illegal activities. He insisted there could be no negotiating Onyx presence in Katanga, but he did clarify that it would not transport Congolese troops or personnel into the province and would make no attempt to subdue the province on behalf of the central government. They would simply get the Belgian forces in Katanga out of the Congo. Now, troops from Guinea and Ghana were in fact never sent into Katanga, however, leading some to conclude that Hammerschel did in fact agree to certain conditions with Shombe. This could, however, be coincidental and related to broad operational considerations, which we will see a bit in the future. I briefly mentioned that Swedish troops may have been selected to serve as Hammerschild's guard entering Katanga because the province's forces would be less likely to mistake them for ANC troops trying to subdue the secessionist state. Beyond this, Onuk staff noticed previously that many Africans were reasonably, afraid of white soldiers since Belgians had terrorized so many communities since the outbreak of the Congo crisis. This went beyond the usual distrust of Belgians on account of the horrific colonial rule suffered by the Congo. However, Katanga was a province marked by the strong connections between the Belgian colonists and domestic provincial elites, so the continued Belgian presence in the area had prevented the sweeping collapse of law and order that afflicted most of the Congo, and so, Belgians had not really terrorized anyone in the province. So, again, while white troops were not exactly feared in Katanga, 
there was a certain paranoid concern that any black troops coming into the province would be pro-Lumumba, or generally pro-Congo forces intent on undermining the project of Katangi's independence. In particular, the influential Belgians feared that they may be ANC units which would loot their homes and attack them personally. This was, after all, a very common occurrence already throughout the crisis. And so, Onuk sent in the Swedes first, which became a major contingent of the Onuk forces in Katanga, and they would later be reinforced by an even more significant contingent of Indian troops. If nothing else, this is a powerful testament to the value of diversity in peacekeeping operations. It does matter. However, the fact remains that race is not everything, even in a world where so many things have been built on the very concept of it. This is especially true when you're talking about groups of people of the same supposed race who recognize that not everyone with similar skin tones are basically the same as them. The best example of this fact in terms of Onuk, however, requires the context of one of the most significant developments of the entire Congo crisis, which unfolded in September 1960. However, that will have to wait until next time, I'm sorry. I hope I have piqued your interest in the United Nations operation in the Congo. There will be a lot of action and intrigue in the future, so stick around. Thank you for watching, and I hope you will join me next time on United for Peace. <laughs>